0: Dynamic Diversity Bringing us together like we're supposed to be Dynamic Magazine We're all different, but we can learn from each other Yeah, from each other In Dynamic, Dynamic Magazine
1: Hello, this is Dynamic Diversity Unfiltered. Dynamic Leaders for a Changing World magazine's premier podcast. We bring you the voices of today's renowned societal leaders and average folks talking about what they do, how they got there, and what they're thinking about in the controversial world of diversity, inclusion, and race relations. In this episode... My brother and I would be... Bust to a black school in Bedford-Stuyvesant and then we'd be bused back to another school in Queens because they didn't know what to do with us because, you know, do so we go to a black school or a white school?
0: Dynamic speaks with Taya Arboleda about the three M's, multiculturalism, media, and mission. A true renaissance man, Taya Arboleda is the president and creative director of Entertaining Diversity, Inc., which focuses on the diversity and inclusion programming through entertainment. He produces and edits documentaries for PBS, Discovery, and won Emmy Awards in 1993 and three Telly Awards. Arboleda is African American, Native American, Filipino, Chinese, and German-Danish, and he grew up in Japan. In Arbolita's charming and witty way, he shares his journey with Dynamak. Can you... T- Tell us about growing up in Japan and how that may have influenced you.
1: Um, well let's see, I um actually uh, was born in New York, uh and then six months later my parents moved my brother and I to Germany, um, where we lived for a couple of years um away from our parents. My my parents were very poor. Um so we we lived with my grandparents in northern Germany, came back to the States, and then uh, after a couple of years in Queens, um, my father decided to move us to Japan, so I grew up there. Um, as a foreigner, it was always a challenge, especially as I got older, starting to understand the dynamics of racism and, um, you know, just sort of exclusionary mindset of a very homogeneous society, um, but also as a mixed race person being part asian uh you know always trying to connect with some aspects of Japan um, exteriorly but um internally uh Japan is still my home my my dad and my brother still live there, so I consider japan my my cultural home uh, but not my physical home.
0: Okay, was your was your father originally from Japan? My father
1: is African American, Native American, Filipino, Chinese. And he was born in Atlanta, Georgia. And um during segregation, during Jim Crow, and uh his father was from the Philippines. Uh they move my grandfather moved the family to Staten Island when my father was very young because of the trying to sort of escaping the racism in the south at the time. Um, soon after that grandpa moved the family to the Philippines when my dad I think was nine, uh, because the racism was just something he didn't really want his family to have to deal with. Yeah. So my dad grew up in the Philippines. So my dad is culturally Filipino as I am culturally Japanese. Uh although my father looks stereotypically like an African American male.
0: Amazing! <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've had to deal with a lot, and, and well, I, you know, I did uh, have a question that's not among my questions. Uh, when your father was being moved around, was that during the period of time when they had the the Japanese internment cap- camps in the in the United States?
1: No, that was uh, a couple of decades before that. Well, about okay. a decade before that, but um my my uh no, yeah, so I mean that's an interesting question because um, there are many people who are rounded into the concentration camps who are not actually technically Japanese. Um, Japanese, and also so if you look somewhat Japanese, but my dad doesn't look stereotypically East Asian, but his father does my my grandfather looks like a very dark skin, very short. Chinese man.
0: Okay. Okay, well, it, that leads kind of to my, my next question, which is as a mixed race child, can you share with us some of your childhood experiences?
1: Uh, sure. During, um, well, let's see, legally, my parents were not officially recognized as a couple in the state of New York because uh, New York. I think it was 1972 when the uh laws were repealed against mixed race marriage. So, um and this was, you know, just pre uh Martin Luther King assassination, there were the race riots, the bussing in New York. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why my dad moved us from the states to Japan, um my brother and I would be bussed to a black school in Bedford-Stuyvesant and then we'd be Bust back to another school in Queens because they didn't know what to do with us because, you know, do we go to a black school or a white school? Um, And my dad was picked to be a campaign manager for regional campaign manager for McCarthy, not McCarthy, what was his name? McGovern. McGovern, who was running for president at the time, to sort of be the mascot you know, man of color you know, uh, so Yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, uh, I've had, when I was a kid, uh, other kids used to throw rocks at us or spit at us. You know, kind of like, yeah. Or or they would like, you know, taunt my mother, make fun of her. Um, Not only because she was married to and had children with a a black man, but also because she's German. So there's just a lot of a lot of stuff that I had to deal with as a kid that I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, and my parents also tried to shield that from my brother and I for the longest time. Uh, moving to Japan, it took us away from the racism in the United States, but in Japan had you know they had their own anti-American, anti-foreigner sentiment um, and also didn't know what to make of us because... You know we didn't fit the mold of what Americans were supposed to be,
0: yeah yeah we've we've come so far in the last fifty years, I'd say, mhm, well, what was the pivotal moment in your life that led to your passion and focus on diversity? Um, I believe that I can
1: remember even when I was a kid my so my okay, let me preface that with my father was a United Nations diplomat uh for most of his career and he would be gone sometimes 5 6 months out of the year and he would come back with stories about where he went people he met the life in other countries and so he would sit or sit with us at the dining room table and just you know tell us stories and share stuff and or when he'd be reading the newspaper he would always Try to get my brother and I engaged a little bit in learning about politics around the world, or things that have happened, cultural events, and history.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, when I
1: when I was uh, thinking about going to college, I wanted to stay in Japan, but my father encouraged me to leave uh, to to study in the United States because he just thought it'd be a lot. Better for me and easier for me. I have more opportunities. Uh, so I thought about maybe studying political science and going into politics and international relations. And my father said, you know, pretty much that's stupid.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think partly because he was protecting me because it's it's not an easy field to be in. I don't think that any field is, but. Also because I think he knew that I, I, I'm not a I'm not built like that. You know, I'm I'm much more of a you know, uh communicator and uh uh entertainer and, and producer, so he encouraged me to study communication. Um and um but you know, I have no idea what your question was and I had no idea how I got here. So uh
0: <laughs> the question was what what was <laughs> I have no idea how I got here. I love that. <laughs> uh what was the pivotal moment in your life that led to your passion and focus on diversity? Oh right, that's right, that's right. Um I had worked in
1: television for years and I went to uh a an event at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Um the current senator at the time producer and comedian on Saturday Night Live, Al Franken, was... Love
0: him. <laughs> well,
1: I don't, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what happened. Okay. Um, so he was giving a talk about writing comedy about politics. And again, this is at Harvard University. So there are about maybe five, 600 people in the audience. Um, and after he gave his talk... I walked up to the microphone and I challenged him and I said, you know, Mr. Franken, you, you've got, you know, one of the most powerful TV shows on the planet. Uh, how many of your writers are are women? And he said, well, two of them, but we don't pay them. And then half the audience booed him. Of course, now he's angry at me. And I said, no, okay, here, another question for you. How, how many minorities do you have as ri- actual writers and producers on Silent Live? And he said, none. Uh-huh. I said, all right, what do you plan to do about it? And he said, why? Why do I have to do anything about it? I said, because isn't that a responsibility that we all have, is to be more inclusive? And um, he said, he started making homophobic jokes and, you know, uh, um, gay jokes and women jokes and black uh-huh. jokes. And, and then he said, it's okay that I make these jokes because I'm Jewish. uh-huh. And I, I have ahead. all of this on tape, by the way. So if he ever runs for president, that's going right on YouTube. Um, so uh, then I challenged him and I said, well, you know, uh, you know, all due respect, uh, I'm a producer as well and I'm a writer and I'm a comedian and uh, I, I can't have any respect for what you're saying because it's not funny and you're telling us the truth about racism in the industry and then he got really upset. He started making more homophobic remarks and, and this and that. And he said, you know, he said, um, you know, next question. So I eventually sat down, and every time he made more jokes, he'd point at me, and he, or he'd point around the room and say, I, I'm sorry, did I just cross the line? Where, where's that ethnic guy? Uh, and then, yeah, so that became my stage name. Uh, my stage name was, was Ethnic Man for about 20 years. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, and he actually wrote about me in his first book. Uh he he wrote about the incident, you know, from his his perspective. Um and so then I turned to my wife who was with me there and I said, "All right, um I'm I'm in this is when I was working for Frontline. I said, I, "I'm leaving Frontline." And she said, "Why?" And I said, "Because of this man. Uh he just gave me all the reason in the world to do something drastically different, and so I left television, and I formed Entertaining Diversity uh, to uh, talk about issues of diversity through entertainment.
0: Wow. I can't help but wonder if that was maybe a pivotal moment for him as well, because, you know, through the ensuing years, we've seen more and more diversity on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, there was an inter- interview
1: with Lauren Michaels on uh, uh, with Terry Gross, I think it was about a year ago, a year, a year and a half ago, and pretty much Lauren Michaels, the executive producer, was saying, why do I have to worry about diversity? Why is that important? I mean, if comedians aren't funny, then they're not funny. So it's very difficult to find black comedians who are funny.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's and, not. You know,
1: my, I think my <laughs> are out of my mouth. like, okay, you know what planet is he living on? He's so, and but that's the problem with the industry. You know that that's the Oscars so white issue. Yep. that's the you know that's what happened just the other day. You know, uh, Moonlight won,
0: uh-huh. and they they were never in the light. You know. Well, it's that, only because the moment was stolen from them by having the stolen. wrong movie announced. And and Jimmy Kimmel was making
1: fun of the uh, that Asian woman's name. She was making fun of the actor's name, you know, and it's a, you know, he crossed, uh, Jimmy Kimmel crossed the line because he doesn't understand that what he's saying has deep impact on, you know, more than half the country. And, and so, you know, that, and I've been doing this for, uh, since 1992, you know, this has been all I've been doing for all these years, and we've barely moved. We've barely come far enough where actors of color, comedians of color, performers, writers, are not just writers and artists and communicators. They are black or Asian or whatever, and that's so not the point. The point is that we need to diversify all aspects of every industry uh, because that's who we are. You know, if we were just a nation of all white males, Christian, straight, then mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's what it would be. But we're not. We're not even close to that. Right. So, and the industry is. And I just got off the phone with a good friend of mine who wrote a book called um, "Real and Ine- uh, Real Ine- uh, Real, Ine- uh, Real Inequality," which is about racism in Hollywood. And we're actually producing a, a PBS documentary uh, now. Um, uh, based on her book uh and we're getting in contact with a bunch of celebrities who are very outspoken about racism in the industry um <clears throat> so i just like literally just talking about that before I got on the phone with you um you know that that's the that's the crux of all of it hollywood has such a profound effect on the rest of the world how people see themselves mm-hmm. you know um racial surgery in south korea is so common, it's the most common place to get racial surgery, and that means even leg lengthening. Women will get their legs cut, their bones cut, and lengthened I, yeah. so they'll have longer legs, you know? I've seen that And, and procedure. it's all, yeah, it's all a response to the industry. Wow. It, it's a horrible uh, thing to have to overcome if we hate ourselves to the point where Michael Jackson died before he could tell the world that what he did was wrong. You know, that whitening your skin and trying to be not something and then
0: celebrating that is exactly the wrong message. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh... That leads into my next question, which is, how did you develop the idea for your instructional lectures, and when did you begin? I've always
1: been an actor, been a comedian. I spent years on the road as a comedian early in my career, Uh, a writer, started in news and television, Uh, got to learn how to tell stories. I produced a lot of, I I don't know, probably over 70 full-length documentaries and movies and all kinds of stuff. So I, you know I'm an author and such so I so I'm a I'm an entertainer but I think the core of it is that uh because of my inherent mix and my experiencing experiences traveling through over 23 countries that I just can't understand why the human race is taking this long to get the point <laughs> Uh so the problem is that even as a college professor, part of the problem is that if it's very pedantic and and um, academic in how we teach people and kids about inclusivity and diversity and cultures, that people don't really respond unless they're engaged. So entertainment was the way in for me to get people to be engaged. So uh, fortunately, I figured out a formula. I wrote a one-man show uh, at the time called Ethnic Man, uh, it, and then it changed. It's now called um, uh, Other, um, the new normal is the subtitle. And so my show, Ethnic Man, year one, I was performing primarily in elementary schools, middle schools, even some high schools, by the end of year two, Uh, An agent had found me, and I was doing upwards of 80 shows a year um, all over the country. So that means, and that's a lot, because you're on a plane like every four or five days. Yeah. Um, But what it meant was that uh, America was hungry for these stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was before there were directors of diversity or the word multiculturalism was even thrown around on college campuses. Uh, you know, there there wasn't in fact people real barely understood what that meant. So I was really part of a large group of well, maybe a smaller group of pioneers who are trying to figure out what does this mean in the context of education, what does it mean in the context of business? How do you tell these stories uh and make them relevant to uh business and life and, and all that. So, um, I think we were all just trying to figure it out. Um, uh, my formula was basically storytelling, humor, and a lot of research. I mean, just tons and tons of research. It's, it, you know, as a professor that's, you know, and I teach at a, at a, um, research university. So, uh, you know, there's, there's just a lot of that, that, fills the void when it comes to
0: uh, understanding some of the intricacies. Uh Okay, well, can you tell us something about, well, a little more, you already have a little bit about your PBS documentaries and your Discovery Education Series, Diversity Elementary? Uh let's see. Uh Diversity Elementary,
1: uh oh boy, I produced that so long ago. Um I produced it originally for uh an organization called AGC United Learning. They were eventually bought out by Discovery. Um and that was maybe 15 years ago. Uh and it became an international uh internationally renowned Series for first through fourth graders in like twelve different countries, uh, and the series uh, focuses on well, it's it's a six-part series, but it focuses on race, culture, uh, religion, um, families, class, and um, and it's broken down into components. And yeah, it's used in many countries. I, I wrote the teachers guides for them and then it it went to streaming, so now it's streaming and um yeah, so uh, Discovery wanted me to do another six episodes a couple of years ago, but they um they uh I think they 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 lost a lot of well actually they got rid of a lot of people uh discovery learning and they really uh reduced their staff size significantly so they weren't able to come up with a way to do that but um yeah
0: it's still a very very popular series excellent well uh, how about some of your pbs documentaries uh let's see model minority
1: do the math uh premiered at wgbh tv boston which is the pbs mother station here uh, just about 20 miles from us uh, I worked there for many years. Uh, that is a documentary that I produced with my co-producer, Darby, Leopold Price, and um, he's also mixed race. And this documentary looked at the impact, uh, the negative impact of the model minority stereotype, you know, where Asian Americans assume to be smart, good at math and all that. So yeah. it turns out in his research that... Um, uh, uh, at a place like University of Chicago where we focus most of our research on uh, uh, Asian Americans and Asian immigrants on the University of Chicago campus have a three times better chance of going through severe depression and even suicide suicide attempts uh, some of them which were successful suicides
0: Um,
1: uh, primarily because of dealing with the model minority assumption that they don't need help, they don't need support because wow. they're smart and they're well connected. And I just read an article today, for example, that in uh, Queens, New York, the, high, the, the, the group that, is, that has the highest amount of unemployment are Asian Americans. Wow. So, so it, you know, it's a it, it's a it's a myth that uh, you know. Just because your eyes are shaped a certain way that you're more intelligent, that's just stupid you know that's that doesn't even that is so juvenile to even assume something like that um, and so uh this was a story about uh six six students on the college of uh, uh University of illinois um Chicago who talked about their experiences uh there was an Indian. American there was a Laotian immigrant, there was a chinese american there was a uh and so you know a, a mix of different people, and all of them talked about the real difficulty that they have daily because of all the stereotypes and assumptions that even the professors have of them uh very devastating
0: uh, um, you know well, the thought the thought occurred to me what if they didn't get as good a grades? As everyone expected them to, you know, because everybody assumed that they were smart. And then, you know, what if they weren't that smart, and they got really depressed about it?
1: Right, right. So, for example, uh, um, many, especially Asian American immigrants from East Asia, uh, and I know this just having grown up in Japan. That you know, I like for example, I don't know anybody in Japan who has a therapist. Huh. You know, it's not like it's not like, you know, my mother lived in New York City for many years and like everyone seemed to have a therapist.
0: Either yeah. either
1: someone was a therapist or someone had a therapist. <laughs>
0: um
1: <laughs> um so I don't know, it's just it, it because you deal with issues differently. You know, it's usually community or family support. Yeah. Um but also because um generally speaking, Japanese don't talk about their feelings. You know? You just don't, you know, introduce yourself to someone and say, "Yeah, I had a bad day yesterday." You know, I, blah blah blah. It, you know, that's not how you communicate. Um, so, it's assumed often that Asians, Asian immigrants particularly, don't need any help because <sighs> they don't necessarily go for help. The problem is that if professors, the administrators, and the therapists on college campuses don't understand this dynamic. Uh, they're not going to be able to observe the um, the little kernels of issues that students might not show because they don't think they're supposed to or can, but you need to be able to reach out and understand where they're coming from. And then when they do go for help, often what they get is a professor or therapist will say, Oh, what do you have to worry about? You know, you're doing well in school. You, it looks like you're doing well in math. Um, you, you'll be fine. You know, just you know, hang out with your friends and go visit your parents. You know, stuff like that. But if it's a white student, you know, they'll say, "Oh, you know, what's wrong, honey? You know, you know, tell me. You know, what you know, what's going, what's on your mind?" And so that that's unconscious bias. Yeah. You know, and if a therapist or professors aren't trained
0: correctly, they don't spot the problem. I got it. Okay. Well, um, along those lines, uh, can you tell our audience about some of the more outstanding or unique audiences that you've encountered?
1: Well, that's a wide question,
0: isn't it? Uh,
1: outstanding.
0: Uh, or unique U- unique um, you know okay so I'll give you an example um,
1: I was in southern Texas as as many years ago maybe 10 years ago and uh, I was at a community college I believe I don't remember where it was exactly and uh, for some reason and again this is a community college so most of the audiences typically on the college would be college students for some reason uh, one of the uh professors brought um her her student teachers and their student teachers students who were fourth graders so i had to adjust how i presented because uh you know just knowing that they're fourth graders in the in the audience uh after my program uh one of the fourth graders stood up and very cordial and he said sir um my mother told me that in the Bible, uh it says that the races shall never come together.
0: Mm. so
1: of course, I had to think on my feet here, okay so I'm in southern Texas uh, how do I answer this question so as to be you know sensitive to wh- where other people are in their minds, but also be realistic about you know about this so I said, um, well, very good question, young man I said um have you ever read the Bible? And he said, no, sir, I have not. And I said, okay. Um, maybe what you should do, if you can, when you go home, if you could ask your mother to show you where in the Bible it says that, and then um, ask her to show you the passage and have her describe to you um, how that's translated uh, you know, to you correctly. In other words, uh, you might want to ask her what you know. What does race mean in this case, or what does culture mean in this case? Because when the Bible was written, categories of race didn't exist the way they do now. Yeah. Right. So it, w- races back then were not about black and white, as people didn't travel quick enough to even make that those distinctions. If the word race, I had never read the Bible. I'm not Christian. But if if the word race was was used. It was used for other reasons. Unless it was rewritten, this particular Bible that his mother reads was rewritten by someone who appropriated the word race in the way that he or she wanted it to be. So, mm-hmm. so I said, yeah, it's just important that you recognize that as you get older, when you're in junior high school and high school and college, that you will learn how to make decisions for yourself, and you learn how to also analyze things how to look at words in a way that maybe you didn't think about before. And these are very important because um we we know for a fact that there's only one human race, that my mother and my father could have children because they are both human beings, period. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so I said, mm-hmm. Do you understand what that means? And he says, Yes sir, I do. I said, Well very good. Um I, I think you understand where I'm coming from. So, you know, I wish I could have followed up with this with this child, but I remember this child often because racism, homophobia, uh, sexism, and all of those other biases and those isms are taught. You're not born, Mm -hmm. you're not born a racist, you're not born homophobic, you are taught to be these things. Yep. And so Discovery Elementary, I mean... um, uh um <clears throat> diversity elementary i wrote I, I produced because I wanted kids to get the point early and i uh and so um unique uh, m- maybe because it was so, a fourth grader so you were go ahead, sorry no i was just gonna i was just gonna end it with u- unique maybe, but then again, you know I've been doing this for so long and i've met I've, i don't know i've i've just met so many people that um i can't really think of any others that are particularly they often very similar questions is what i'm what i'm saying
0: well i was just going to offer the observation that you you wanted to you did this with very young children so that you could counter whatever racism was being taught yes yeah right and uh, and sadly enough
1: Sadly enough, it's often, many times the, in this case, their teachers or their parents. On college campuses, it's the professors, and in corporations, it's anybody, managers or it's you know anybody who, who just you know they're they're not, they're very much like Al Franken. They're not, they they just don't understand the domino effect of a word or a comment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let me switch gears a little bit. Well, maybe not entirely switch gears. Can you tell us about what inspired you to do mixed-race family counseling? And please explain a bit about your areas of counseling, particularly overcoming bias, multicultural family conflict resolution, and the third culture kids support.
1: Sure. Well, so um, I guess just to make it clear, I'm not Officially, I'm not licensed to be a counselor, so I'm not a I'm not a counselor in that sense. But I do counsel people, um, and mm-hmm. many, many, many people. In fact, my my book, um, Mixed Feelings, uh, is doing very well. Uh, used by many communities, um, uh, multiracial communities, schools, and such. Um, so, you know, let's say I'm interviewed live on television, and someone calls up and says. You know, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, I am Asian, my husband is white, and we have a kid, and she's going to be in middle school, and we just know that in our neighborhood, she's going to start to learn that uh, she doesn't quite fit in, and she's going to make choices. What do you think we should do? Well, that's a very, <laughs> it's a very difficult question. First of all, I don't know your neighborhood. I don't know your kid. Um, what should we do? I mean, there's so many things that could come into play here. You know, is it an inclusive neighborhood? What do other kids look like? You know, um, what are the te- how do the teachers handle these situations? But I think what they're really asking is, is can you give us some tools to help us navigate situations that we may not be familiar with or that may come up that we're not prepared for? So for example, if a teenage kid Uh, feels like she has to be more Asian because that's going to get her more friends or be more white because that's going to be, she's not going to get poked fun at as much or she wants to be in a school play, but because she's Asian or part Asian, so, you know, is she going to play Pocahontas? Is she going to play, um, what's the name of that? Mulan or something like that, or can she not? You know, all the things that a teenager might deal with, you know, and then on social media now, of course, uh, there's just so much, um, you know, so much bullying that happens that is often, um, you know, it's often, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? um, Racially motivated. Yeah, and also anonymous so that
0: people feel free to
1: say anything they want. And so the counseling comes from just helping uh, families, especially, who uh, talk to me like after a book signing or whatever? They might ask me, you know, I'm in this situation. What do you feel? Or and also, I have two daughters, for example, who are both adopted, and they're both East Asian, uh, a mix of East Asian. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm also an adoptive dad. So I I I I understand the adoption stuff as well. You know, that's you know, it's just um, you know, I I don't think about it that way, but people often ask me so you know the that, that's also the the cross racial adoption uh issue is also the the third largest uh um group within the mixed race household and so it's it's a very powerful connection when people find someone who has dealt with these things and knows how to express uh oh you know How he or she has dealt with it, and then offer some tools. Um, There are just so many people. I get so many calls and emails, and especially when I do my lectures or my shows, just people flood the stage afterwards, and just you know we hang around. Sometimes we hang around for longer than the show itself, just talking about what the issues are for them and how they handle it, and whether they're handling it the way they should, and you know, I you know all I can do is offer some ideas. Um, you know, and the your other... experience, which is invaluable. Yeah, you know, and also because I'm a I'm a trained diversity consultant, and because I as a professor I teach race and ethnic relations, and because of my background, my understanding, and it's just it, my whole world is my whole world is seasoned from all of these experiences in my job that um, my main job is to give back to everyone that I can. And, you know, it's it's I, I can't say it's easy, and I can't even say that it's fun because, you know, it'd be like a doctor who works in an ER. I can't imagine a doctor who works in ER is having fun. He or she is just doing what what they have to do to save lives. And in in my case, I I hate that I have to do this. I I hate the fact that since Donald Trump was elected, uh, school school, and I've spoken to um, superintendents around the country and uh, directors of, um, of, of education around the country, and everyone is reporting, well, most people are reporting, that the number of racist, homophobic, uh neo-nazi blah 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 incidents anti-islamic uh sentiment has quadrupled in the past 2 months Whoa. teaching teaching tolerance has been very clear about the 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 uh the flood of um of fear uh and um you know as we know the uh jewish uh cemeteries and and all this community it, centers yeah yeah and and bomb threats, and, and it's just, it has escalated so dramatically in the past two months. Uh, school therapists, I read an article about a month ago, school therapists, this was a month ago, school therapists are saying that um, immigrant students, and particularly black and Hispanic students, are waiting in line to speak to the school therapist. Wow. There, in fact, in our town, there are kids, uh, uh, immigrant kids, who will literally go to the superintendent's office and hide, like physically hide, because they don't, you know, like these are like elementary school kids, because in their their little brains, they believe that at some point someone's going to come into the school and just take them away.
0: Whoa. That's so, horrible. You know, they're yeah, so, living in constant fear yeah you and, and the the PTSD
1: uh oh, you know yeah. the PTSD especially for um jewish families you know just the, you know and 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 black families and hispanic families immigrant families uh you know gay kids lesbian kids transgendered kids you know the the the, the level of fear and you can see it and you know when i do my shows no, I so I was in um where was I? Syracuse. Where was I? Skidmore Skidmore College. It was about maybe three months ago. Um after my show, uh standing room only, great, powerful experience for all of us because just everyone was so charged. Um a group of twelve students wanted to talk with me after the show, so we sat in the lobby for almost two hours. Just talking, just talking, and these are—I don't know these kids, you know—and it was like 11 o'clock by the time we were done. I was exhausted. I still had to drive back to Massachusetts, you know. Um, Whoa. You know, it's like a six-hour drive, so I, I stayed overnight in a hotel. But the the um, these these kids wanted to talk. They were desperate just to talk, and so this one kid. I say kids, I shouldn't say kids. Well they are kids. The freshman. Um, transgendered, uh female to male.
0: And he uh, sat there for a bit holding
1: hands with some of his newfound friends who they only met like within days because this was like this is like, you know, some new group that they formed or something like that. They were holding all holding hands and finally he started to speak and we all just cried. We just cried. Everybody just cried. And what he said was, you know, I have never ever and I think he was originally from Denver. I've never been in a community of people my age who just accept me for who I am. Wow. And he said, I am just so grateful that I can sit here with everyone uh, and just joke and have a good time, and no one's going to question me. No one's going to fear me because I'm transgendered. And I had been to the men's room uh, earlier before the show, and so I said, well you're in a very good place because, as you know, on this campus, the bathrooms are are, are unisex. Yeah. So, you know, they're right on the door. Uh, you have the symbol for all, right? And, and that was standardized there, at least in that building. Um, and so I said, you know, you're in a good place. You know, you're a freshman. You are away from your family, but you're you've got a new family here, uh, and you know they must love you, and you know you 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 stick together for four years, and you'll be friends forever. Yeah. And uh, and then we just we just talked, you know, like talked about all of their particular issues. There were mixed kids there. There were there was one girl from Uganda who's best uh, sorry from Uganda, and but she grew up in England, so she was in Uganda first, in England, then she went to Australia, I think, and then came to the United States, and then so all these kids, they're TCK kids, they were multiracial kids, transgender kids, all sitting with me, and I felt so lucky to be amongst these, these these souls, you know, and that's, so that's what I love, but I hate the fact that I have to do it.
0: Yeah but it's very uh, rewarding, gratifying. Yeah, it is. Well, can you share with us how you came to be nominated for and win your Emmy Award and Telly Awards? Uh, my Emmy Award, I uh, 1993, um, I, it was
1: a documentary I did with my friend Dolores Handy, uh, a, a documentary about the actor James Earl Jones. And so he's such an amazing person. <laughs> um <clears throat> excuse me. Uh that story was essentially about essentially about being a black actor and and um
0: and and a writer. He had come up
1: with this book, uh I can't remember the name of the book. Uh, uh I have no idea what the name of the book is. It's gone now. <laughs> It'll come back to me. Um My first telly was for my documentary, my PBS documentary, uh, Crossing the Line, Multiracial Comedians, which got tremendous acclaim around the country, because that was just during the same couple of months where uh, Michael Richards had yelled the N-word on stage. Margaret Cho was, not Margaret Cho, um... So bad with names. Uh she was on The View, the comedian on the View. Um she she was making ching chong ching chong jokes. Um, and then oh Rosie O'Donnell. And then um Margaret Cho was also starting to speak out against racism in the industry and uh in, in comedy that is. And um it was at a time when the idea of crossing the line as a comedian was coming up to question because people were starting to consider the First Amendment as being a, a loose uh, translation of what was really happening, and that was that racism was rearing its ugly head again. Uh, so it came out at the perfect time, and a lot of discussion across the country. Uh, I was interviewed on N- NPR and LA Times, Boston Globe, New York Times, and. A lot of other newspapers and television shows, and just you know, everyone was really saying, "Well, who's really got the right? Like, if Chris Rock can use the N word, can a half black man, half black comedian, use the N word? Or can a you know, can an Asian, half Asian woman make Asian jokes? And how do you prove that you're half Asian? You know, all of that. Um, So, uh, so we got to interview some really uh people who were up and coming and who are now actually pretty well known uh and then model minority do the math was my uh was my second telly and then uh 3 days ago I got my third telly
0: Oh yay congratulations thank you What what was that for That was for a social commentary short
1: film uh that I did with my co-producer Michael Toe uh, which reflects on the stereotypes against Asians in Hollywood. So, for uh-huh. example, uh, whitewashing an Oscar's So White. So, Scarlett Johansson uh, obviously is not Japanese. Uh, obviously. <laughs> you know, and what's really odd about Scarlett Johansson is that she still doesn't get it. She still doesn't understand why it's a problem. But also, if you remember the movie Lost in Translation, she played a white. American lost in Tokyo, and uh-huh. now she's playing a Japanese in Tokyo. That's bizarre. How can you be both? Yeah, you know? it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Tilda Swinton playing a Tibetan man. That's bizarre to me. Yeah, uh, Chris Rock uh, with uh, brought up those three Asian kids at the, at last year's Oscars. Uh, that blew up. In his face. That's just stupid. You don't, you don't, um, you don't mock. You, so Chris Rock's thing is that he started the whole Oscars last year, talking about Oscars so white and how you know people of color should be represented better. And then he brings on stage these three little Asian kids and he just makes fun of them. Like, what is that? You you're, you've missed the point completely. You've done exactly. Something against what you were talking about, mhm, yeah. so we yeah. made comments uh uh you know those those uh, gestures towards all that racism um, so that was entered as a social media short short form
0: um, yeah, so that just got a got a telly telly award excellent, well, your work is obviously making a difference in the area of race relations. Have you seen a change in culture or attitudes in the groups you've spoken to and how do you hope to make cultural changes in the future? Well, uh I really wish I could say
1: that there's been a significant change uh in how business is conducted, how schools are adapting to uh new ways of designing curriculum that are more inclusive i wish i could say that hatred is down and neo nazi groups are dwindling but yeah that's not the case the reality is through any you know factual stuff you can find that um the glass ceiling is still a problem in many industries most industries, Uh, for women, minorities, uh, gay, lesbian, otherwise. Uh, Curriculum hasn't really changed all that much. And, you know, kids are still being taught that Christopher Columbus discovered America. That's just bizarre. That's just so
0: bizarre. I
1: don't
0: don't get it. And every year they learn the same damn thing. Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, as if they're gonna forget uh,
1: and I wish that I wish that at the end of the Obama presidency that we we would be at a place where you know I wouldn't have to travel as
0: much, yeah, but we did an about face a complete about face, yeah. As a country, I mean, you know. Right. But you know, at the same time,
1: America is changing so rapidly. I I know you know these numbers too. You know, this is, I think, just something that's talked about a lot. The the demographics are changing so rapidly. So, for example, the second fastest growing population, household population in the United States, are mixed race, multicultural, and cross racial adoptive families. So that's the second. Yeah, that's the second fastest-growing population. So, and the fastest is Asian. So, oh, if wow. we have, if we have, in 20 years, in 10 years, uh, the next generation of kids who, like, like m- my daughters, who will be going to college. Well, the older ones in college, but um, who don't think like that, they're going to be the ones who make decisions. They're the ones who are gonna be shopping, they're the ones who are gonna be um starting companies, running for political office.
0: Uh
1: it's not gonna look anything, anything like what it has. And yeah, America the, the, the people who have a problem with this are not prepared. They're 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 not prepared, they're not preparing their own kids, they're not preparing yeah. their own communities, uh publishers don't get it. They just don't get it. Uh, producers don't get it. Uh, corporate CEOs often just don't get it. Uh, they don't want it. You know, the fact is, they they just
0: don't want it. I mean, you know, that's that's the truth. Well, it's is what's happening. <laughs> mm. I, I predict in fifty years, everybody's going to be kind of a caramel color. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, <laughs> right, right, right. And, and and if they're not, they're just
1: going to get spray tanned. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I just want to fit in. <laughs> oh, you know that'd be great. We we should we should like invest in like you know these these um tanning salon companies. You know that's going to be very.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your insight and perspective on on this issue. It's uh really great to uh get uh, the insight from a person who's lived it in pretty much all stages, you know, all cross-cultural areas. So yeah, I I I hope that
1: there're more of more of us and I'm I'm glad that Uh, You know, and and again, thank you. And thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can talk about making a difference. You can take action to make a difference. Or you can join Dynamic in doing both. Until next time, stay blessed and be inspired.